Good morning. Will you pray with me? Father, we thank you that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. We pray that you would grant to your people great joy as we look into this section of Luke's gospel and consider the incarnation of your Son. Father, we pray also for those here this morning who do not know you. Pray that today would indeed be the day of their salvation, that the Holy Spirit would do the work of regeneration in their hearts and reveal to them the glory of your gospel. We ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Please take out your copy of the scriptures and turn to Luke chapter 1. If you did not bring a Bible this morning, that's all right. Feel free to use one of the Black Pew Bibles that you'll find uh, in your row. And Luke chapter 1 will be on page 803. We at First Baptist have been making our way through this third gospel. And this morning, once again, we find ourselves in chapter 1, verses 26 to 38. Now, those of you who were here last week, you'll remember that last Sunday... We focused on Mary from these verses. We considered her first her background, uh, that she was, in terms of social status, a nobody, uh, just a young teenage girl. And she was from nowhere, uh, the obscure little town of Nazareth, a city of Galilee named Nazareth. And really the only thing that we know about her background from these verses is that she was betrothed to be married to a young man named Joseph. And so really the most remarkable thing about her, at least in terms of her background, is how unremarkable she really is. But our God is often pleased to use what is low and despised in the world to do great things. Then we considered her favor Uh, The grace that God showed to her in allowing her to become the mother of Jesus. And we pointed out that it was completely unmerited and unearned and undeserved by Mary. It was a free gift from God. I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious. And so it is with the grace that God's children have received in the free gift of our salvation. And then finally we considered her submission I am the slave of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. And it was a potentially costly submission, as Joseph would likely divorce her for the pregnancy. But again, we see the grace of God towards Mary in how he reveals his plan to Joseph also through a separate angelic visit. Joseph Son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. And so Joseph would take Mary as his wife and raise Jesus as his adopted son. So last week, we focused on Mary, the mother. This week, I want to look at these same verses and focus on Jesus the son, specifically what the angel Gabriel says to Mary about this baby. So look along as I read our verses for this morning. Once again, Luke chapter 1, verses 26 through 38. In the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David. And the virgin's name was Mary. And he came to her and said, Greetings, O favored one, the Lord is with you. But she was greatly troubled at the saying and tried to discern what sort of greeting this might be. And the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great. And will be called the Son of the Most High, and the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there will be no end. 
Mary said to the angel, How will this be, since I am a virgin? And the angel answered her, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. And behold, your relative Elizabeth in her old age has also conceived a son, and this is a sixth month with her who was called barren, for nothing will be impossible with God. And Mary said, Behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. And the angel departed from her. Y'all remember the Domino's 555 deal? Right, three piping hot, medium one-topping pizzas for just $5 each. Well, this morning, as we consider what the angel Gabriel has to say about Jesus from this passage... I've got a 2-2-2 deal for you. And so from these verses, we're going to look at point number one, two prophecies of Jesus. Point number two, two sonships of Jesus. And then point number three, two natures of Jesus. Two prophecies, two sonships, and two natures of Jesus. A little 2-2-2 deal for you this Christmas. So let's start with point number one. Two prophecies of Jesus. Uh, the angel Gabriel here makes reference to two different Old Testament prophecies that are fulfilled through Jesus' birth. First one is from the book of Isaiah, and it's a prophecy that's quoted quite often around this time of year. Uh, it's from Isaiah chapter 7, verse 14. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son... And shall call his name Emmanuel. And now look at Luke one thirty one, And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son. And you shall call his name Jesus. Now it's very clearly a reference to Isaiah 7.14. But you'll notice that Luke just kind of leaves it at that. right? He allows the reader to then make the connection between what's happening with Jesus and the prophecy from Isaiah chapter 7. But Matthew, in his gospel, he makes that connection between the prophecy and the fulfillment explicit. Matthew one twenty two, all this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. Jesus' birth, specifically how he was born of a virgin took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet Isaiah in Isaiah 7.14. But there's also a second fulfillment of prophecy that the angel Gabriel refers to here. Look at the next two verses, verses 32 and 33. He will be great and will be called Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father, David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And of his kingdom, there will be no end. Now, if you're with us uh, just a few months ago when we were studying through the book of 2 Samuel, uh, hopefully this rings a bell. Keep your finger in Luke 1. Turn back to 2 Samuel chapter 7. Uh, I want you to see this in your own Bibles. Uh, 2 Samuel chapter 7 I'm going to start reading in verse 11. Moreover, the Lord declares to you that the Lord will make you a house. This is God speaking to David. When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you who shall come from your body and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be to him a father and he shall be to me a son. When he commits iniquity, I will discipline him with the rod of men, with the stripes of the sons of men. But my steadfast love will not depart from him, as I took it from Saul, whom I put away from before you. And your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. As we spoke about a few months ago, some aspects of this promise, some aspects were fulfilled in David's son, Solomon, and the descendants who would follow him and also reigned as the kings of Judah. 
And so Solomon did indeed build a house for God's name, the temple at Jerusalem. And Solomon indeed was disciplined for his iniquity, as were the kings that came after him. And God's steadfast love did not depart from Solomon and his progeny, uh, even through the exile and the return. But there's that one word in those promises from 2 Samuel 7 that makes it very clear that they were never meant to apply only to Solomon and his immediate descendants. It's a word that appears three times in that passage, and it's the word forever. Forever means that these promises could not have been fulfilled by Solomon and the kings of Judah because they didn't rule forever. None of them lived all that long. And even the dynasty itself, the succession, that dynasty came to an end in 586 BC when the Babylonians destroyed Jerusalem. But God made this promise forever. There's two things that we know about God's promises. Number one, God keeps his promises. And number two, all the promises of God find their yes in Jesus, 2 Corinthians 1.20. And we see that illustrated clearly here in Luke chapter 1. Uh, God keeps the promises made to David in 2 Samuel chapter 7. And these promises most definitely find their ultimate fulfillment in Jesus. Because look again at 2 Samuel 7 verse 16. What are the three things that God promises to David to establish forever. Look at the second half of the verse. Your throne shall be established forever. Now look at the first half of the verse. Your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. So throne, house, kingdom, forever. That's the promise. That's the prophecy. Now look at Luke chapter 1, verses 32 and 33. Here we see the fulfillment The Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there will be no end. Throne, house, kingdom, no end, forever. You see that Luke 1 undeniably tells us that the prophecy of 2 Samuel chapter 7 finds its ultimate fulfillment in this Jesus who was to be born. So point number one, two prophecies of Jesus. Gabriel points out two of the many Old Testament prophecies that find their fulfillment in the birth of Jesus. Isaiah chapter 7, 2 Samuel chapter 7. There's a lot that can be said about the fulfillment of Old Testament prophecies. For one, uh, seeing and recognizing Old Testament prophecies and then seeing their fulfillment in the New Testament, well, that gives us a more connected understanding of the two Testaments, does it not? We see the old and the new not as two separate entities, but as one connected whole, with the old pointing to the new and the new looking back on and fulfilling the old. Second, it bolsters our confidence that the God who kept his promises in the past will continue to keep his promises going forward. But third, and I especially want you to consider this this morning, seeing Old Testament prophecies so clearly fulfilled like this, does it not allow us to really appreciate the wisdom of God? I mean, just think about how these two Old Testament prophecies, Isaiah chapter 7, 2 Samuel chapter 7, that were made hundreds, hundreds of years before Jesus was born, and now how they perfectly find their fulfillment in him. Uh, And our passage is really just kind of scratching the surface. Uh, There's dozens of Old Testament prophecies that Jesus fulfilled. There is just no possible human explanation for that. The only possible explanation is that the book that you're holding in your hands right now really is the Word of God. And that the God who made all of those promises is powerful enough to actually 
keep and fulfill them? Point number one, to prophecies of Jesus. Which brings us to point number two in our 222 deal, the two sonships of Jesus. So apparently sonships uh, is not a real word. Uh, I got the red squiggly thing in Microsoft Word. Uh, It's a word that really only exists in the singular, right? Sonship, S-O-N-S-H-I-P. It's a singular word. But what I'm trying to refer to here, made up a word, that's okay, is Jesus being declared a son in two different ways in this passage, right? Gabriel presents Jesus as a son in two different manners. And so let's consider them one at a time. First consider that Jesus, this baby to be born, that he would be the son of David. Look again at what Gabriel says in verse 32. The Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David. His father David, as in Jesus, would be David's son. Now that is a significant statement uh, when you think about that promise of Davidic kingship that we talked about earlier from 2 Samuel chapter 7. Because remember, kingship is hereditary. It's passed from father to son. And then through Jesus' adoptive father, Joseph, you can trace Jesus' lineage all the way back to David. That's why it's significant, right? Look at verse 27, when Joseph is first introduced, scan your eyes back to that verse for a moment, Joseph is introduced as a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David. Luke's making the point that Joseph is a son of David, and therefore Jesus, as Joseph's adopted son, is also a son of David. He is a rightful claimant of David's throne. And that, by the way, is why Matthew starts off his gospel with a genealogy. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. He links Jesus back to David to show that Jesus had legal rights to David's throne. But let's think about it. There are probably hundreds of little boys running around Israel at that time who were physically descended in some way from David and Solomon and Abijah and so on. There are probably hundreds of little boys who potentially could have claimed the legal right to rule on David's throne. There are probably hundreds of little boys in Israel who could be considered a son of David. But Jesus wasn't just a son of David. Just one of many men who could trace their lineage back to King David. He was the son of David, the descendant of David who God promised would rule on his throne forever, the son of David who would be the ultimate fulfillment of that prophecy from 2 Samuel chapter 7, I will be to him a father and he will be to me a son, the son of David whom Isaiah prophesied about. You know that familiar Christmas passage from Isaiah chapter 9? For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore the zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. That son of David. The son of David whom Ezekiel prophesied about who would be shepherd and king over God's people. David, my servant, shall be their prince forever. The son of David, who would both be David's son and David's Lord. Jesus wasn't just a son of David, one of many. He was the son of David, the long-awaited Messiah. 
pointed this out last week, but I think it's worth repeating here. Mary seems to understand this, uh, at least in, in some way, on some level. Because upon hearing what Gabriel has to say, she's not thinking that she and Joseph are going to have some son in the future who's eventually going to become king over Israel and rule, over, uh, rule on David's throne as a son of David because of his descent from Joseph. Because if that's what she's thinking, she wouldn't ask in verse 34, how will this be since I am a virgin? Now she understands Gabriel's promise to refer not to a future child of her and Joseph, once they had completed their marriage. No, she understands Gabriel's promise to refer to an immediate child. Something special is about to happen. And so she asks, how will this be since I am a virgin? This child is not going to be any ordinary son of David. No, this child is going to be the son of David. The Lord God will give to him the throne of his father, David. Which brings us to the second sonship. And this is what sets Jesus apart from every other human being who has ever been born. This is what sets Jesus apart from every other descendant of David. This is what makes Jesus the son of David, not just a son of David. It's the fact that he is also the son of God. The second sonship that Gabriel brings up is Jesus as the son of God. Look at the beginning of verse 32. He will be great and will be called the son of the most high. Side point here. Uh, But remember last week, Highlights Magazine, Spot the Differences, uh, when a biblical author goes out of his way to point out similarities and parallels, how our attention ought to be drawn to the contrasts. Uh, Well, we've seen in the last few sermons how Dr. Luke intentionally parallels the birth announcement of John the Baptist and of Jesus. But now I want you to notice this huge difference. John, look down at verse 76 he will be called the prophet of the Most High. But Jesus, verse 32, he will be called the Son of the Most High. The Most High was a common name for God in the Old Testament. Uh, In Hebrew, it would have been El Elyon, uh, God Most High. Uh, The first time we see that name in the Bible, Genesis chapter 14, and I think how it's used there gives us a really good clue as to what we're supposed to take away from the name in terms of the meaning. Uh, Genesis 14, 19, blessed be Abram by God most high, right, there's that name, possessor of heaven and earth. So God most high, this is incredibly obvious, right, but it draws our attention to God's highness, right, how high above us he is. His sovereignty and his exaltation and his power and his rule over all things as the possessor of heaven and earth. One more reference to God Most High to drive home this point. Uh, Psalm 47.2 For the Lord, the Most High, is to be feared. A great king over all the earth. God Most High is the great king who sovereignly rules over everything. And so God is God Most High. But now look at what Gabriel says about this child to be born to Mary. This Jesus is the son of the Most High. That is, he is the son of this sovereign God, and verse 35 drives this point home further, Jesus will be called holy, the Son of God. We actually see these two names kind of merge together in Luke 8, 28. There's a demon who addresses Jesus as Son of the Most High God. And so uh, that's like Son of God and Son of the Most High kind of mushed together there. So the second of the two sonships that Gabriel refers to in this passage is Jesus, the Son of God. Now Jesus 
as son of God, well, that perhaps has become uh, such a, a part of kind of Christianese that we sometimes don't even think about what it actually means, like the magnitude of the implications that Jesus is the son of God. Uh, but friends, uh, simply put, to be the son of God is to be very God of very God. It's not like a lesser version of God. It's not like a mini-God or anything like that. No, Son of God equals God. Jesus being the Son of God is undeniably a statement about his divinity and his deity and his godness. Sometimes you'll hear people say, well, Jesus never claimed to be God. That's simply not true. He absolutely did by his claim to be the Son of God. And we know that's exactly what he meant because of the reaction of the Jewish people to that claim. Take a quick tour through the Gospel of John because John really highlights this for us uh, in his Gospel. And so just kind of flip over one book from Luke to John. We'll start in chapter 5. John chapter 5, verse 18. This was why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him. Because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. You see that? To call God his own father, to claim to be the son of God, was nothing less than making himself equal with God. And the Jews of his day understood that crystal clear, and that's why they wanted to kill him. Flip over just a few pages to John chapter 10. John 10, verses 30 and following, Jesus says, I and the Father are one. The Jews picked up stones again to stone him. Jesus answered them, I have shown you many good works from the Father. For which of them are you going to stone me? The Jews answered him, It is not for a good work that we are going to stone you, but for blasphemy. Because you, being a man, make yourself God. Why did they pick up stones? They picked up stones because that was the penalty in the law for blaspheming. It was stoning. You make yourself God by claiming to be the Son of God, by saying things like, I and the Father are one. One more, John 19. John 19, verse 7. The Jews answered Jesus, We have a law, and according to that law, he ought to die because he has made himself the Son of God. He has made himself the son of God, and that's why he ought to die. You cannot read the reactions of the Jews to Jesus and come to any other conclusion to claim to be the son of God was nothing short of claiming to be God. All that to say, this second sonship, Jesus as the son of God, this is the mind-blowing truth That this baby who was about to be born, this little human being that was going to grow in the womb of Mary, was no one less than God himself. As Colossians 2.9 tells us, in Jesus, the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. And the body in whom the whole fullness of deity dwells was about to dwell in the very womb of this virgin. Wait a minute. Wait a minute. You say, how can it be that that baby, that human baby to come out of Mary's womb would be God himself, the son of the most high? Like, is Jesus man or is Jesus God? And the answer, of course, is yes. Which brings us to point number three in our 222 deal, the two natures of Jesus. Because at this point in our text, this point in our sermon, we come to one of the great mysteries of the universe. And that's that in the birth of Jesus Christ, God, the second person of the Trinity, takes on 
human flesh. That's where we get the term incarnation from, uh, to be made flesh. God taking on human flesh. And so as a result of the incarnation, the one person of Jesus has two natures. Point number three, the two natures of Jesus, the God-man. Jesus is fully God. Remember that the the Son of the Most High, he's, he's the Son of God. He is God in every sense of the word. He has eternally existed as God, as one of the three members of the Trinity, God the Son. And yet, Jesus is also fully man, born of Mary. Jesus was a man just like any of us in the sense that he had to eat, he had to sleep, he got tired, he wept. He was a man like any one of us. Theologians like fancy terms, and so they came up with a fancy term for this too, the hypostatic union. That the two natures of Jesus are joined together in his one person. That he is fully God and fully man. Now he is not half God and half man. And his deity and his humanity don't like mix together so that he's neither distinctly human nor divine. No, his deity and his humanity come together so that he is both fully human and fully divine. He's not a man with certain like divine attributes or, or superpowers, like, like, like he's from Marvel or something. But he's also not just God who disguises himself as man. No, Jesus, in his incarnation, is at all times fully God and at all times fully man. Look again at verse 35. The child to be born. Mary's own child, meaning that he was going to be fully human. Will be called holy, the son of God. Meaning that he was going to be fully divine. Just think about that last phrase for a second. Will be called holy. Parents, think about your own children. Most of your children are sweet. Some of your children are cute. But none of your children are holy. Like any child who will be called holy, you know that there's something completely different about that baby. And that difference is that this holy son of God baby is both fully man and fully God. But Gabriel, how is that going to come about? Well, look at verse 35. The angel answered her, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. I think it's best to see the first part of Gabriel's answer as like parallelism. So the Holy Spirit corresponds to the power of the Most High, and will come upon you corresponds to will overshadow you. But a few things to point out here. First, I want you to notice the role that the Holy Spirit is going to play in this miraculous conception. And that's not too surprising, given the Spirit's role in the creation of the universe. Remember Genesis chapter 1, the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. And so just like the Holy Spirit played a prominent role in the creation of the universe... So he has a prominent role in the conception of Jesus. A second note that the way in which the conception will occur is through the Holy Spirit overshadowing Mary. Now that word overshadow, it's used in only one other place in this gospel, and that's at the transfiguration in Luke chapter 9. You know the story, Peter and James and John, they're all hanging up there on the mountain with uh, Elijah and Moses, and then Jesus in his radiant appearance. And it says that a cloud came and overshadowed them. The glory of God overshadows them. And perhaps there's allusions here as well to the the cloud of Shekinah glory from the Old Testament. Those of you who are familiar, uh, God's presence would come and rest upon the tabernacle or the temple or whatever it is. Whatever the case, 
that there's some sense in which the glory of God would come upon Mary and thus she would miraculously bear a child. But there, don't miss the importance of that word in the middle of that verse, therefore. The therefore, right, that connects the Holy Spirit's work in the first half of the verse, right, through the overshadowing with the product of that work. The child to be born will be called holy, the son of God. Basically, the only way, uh, only by the special, divine, miraculous, creative work of the Holy Spirit, that's the only way that such a conception, the incarnation, the hypostatic union, this baby to be born with two natures, that's the only way that that could be brought about. Now, does that answer every single question that we have about the incarnation and the hypostatic union? No, absolutely not. Not even close. But just think about it. Like, as much as we have learned over the last, I don't know, 2,000 years about cell biology and DNA and chromosomes and all that, like, at the end of the day, even our understanding of how normal human life begins, that's still shrouded in just so much mystery. Like, how is the soul brought into existence? You read Psalm 139, verses 13 through 16, and I'll let you read that on your own later. But you just see this repeated emphasis on the mystery of our creation. I am fearfully and wonderfully made. I was being made in secret, intricately woven in the depths of the earth. Your eyes saw my unformed substance. Well, brothers and sisters, think about it. If the way that your life and my life began is still mysterious to us, how much more so the conception of the Son of God? Like if the way that a life with one nature begins is mysterious to us, how much more so the way that a life with two natures begins? Ecclesiastes 11.5, as you do not know the way the spirit comes to the bones in the womb of a woman with child, so you do not know the work of God who makes everything. The pre-existing eternal God of the universe who has always existed, God of very God of very God, is now born as a human being. What a grand mystery. J.C. Ryle said, in a religion which really comes down from heaven, there must be mysteries. Perhaps there's no greater mystery than that of the incarnation and the hypostatic union. Point number three, the two natures of Jesus. But here's the thing, brothers and sisters. Please do not think of the hypostatic union as just kind of some like, heady doctrine for seminarians to debate and discuss with one another. Well, some nice theology you got there, but that really has nothing to do with my life. Well, that would be completely wrong. The hypostatic union, uh, that Jesus is both fully God and fully man, that is relevant and important and applicable to every single one of us. Because it's the only way that any of us can be saved. It's the only way that Jesus can die in our place as our substitute and pay for all of our sin to make us righteous. How so? Well, let's start with the fact that we are all sinners. We're all sinners who've sinned against the Holy God. You're a sinner, and I'm a sinner. We are all sinners, and because of that sin, each and every one of us deserves an eternity in hell. But God, because of his love for sinners like us, he had a plan to redeem, reconcile his people to himself before the foundation of the world. Now here's the million dollar question. How can God save sinners? Perhaps the easiest thing for him to do, maybe what we would like him to do, is just you know, overlook our sin. Get some, brush that sin aside. Well, it's no big deal. Don't worry about it. But for him to do that, 
would be a violation of his own holiness and justice. Like if God did that, God would in essence cease to be God, which of course is impossible. So then how can God save sinners? Well, in the infinite wisdom of the Godhead, the plan was made to send the Son of God to take on human flesh, to be born, the incarnation, the hypostatic union, so that he might become like one of us. And that Son of God, you shall call his name Jesus. Jesus went to the cross and died for our sin in our place, and in exchange he gives us his perfect righteous record. So that all who believe in him, who place their trust in him and him alone for salvation, can be forgiven of our sin and made righteous and fit for heaven, uh, fit to spend an eternity with him as his children. But, and here's my main point here, the hypostatic union is absolutely necessary for that plan of salvation. Jesus had to be fully man. Because only man can die for man as a substitute. Isn't that the point of the book of Hebrews? For it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. As in, you can sacrifice all the animals that you want. But at the end of the day, no sheep and no bull is going to take away the sins of a human being. Only man can die for the sins of man. And so Jesus had to be fully man. But Jesus had to be fully God. Because only God is holy and only God is perfect. Being fully God, Jesus in all of his years here living as a man on earth never once sinned. You see, I can't die for your sin. And the reason I can't die for your sin is because I have my own sin to pay for. I deserve an eternity in hell myself. So how can I take yours? Only one with no sin can suffer the wrath of God in the place of another. Only because Jesus never sinned could he die in our place. And so Jesus had to be fully God. But Jesus had to be fully man because he had to die. God cannot die. That's impossible. And so if Jesus was just God pretending to be man, well, he could not die in our place. But man can die. Jesus is fully man. And so Jesus dies on the cross for our sins. That's the argument from Hebrews chapter 2. Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, that is, since we're humans, he himself likewise partook of the same things. God the Son took on humanity, became fully man, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is, the devil, And deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. Jesus had to be fully man. But Jesus had to be fully God. Because even if a hypothetically perfect human being uh, were to be substituted for us, it would take him an eternity in hell to pay for one person's sins. But Jesus is able to pay for all of the sins of all of his people Because he is fully God. Finally, Jesus had to be fully God because in the gospel, not only do we have our sins paid for, but we get his perfect righteous record. A perfect righteous record that could only be achieved by perfect righteous God. So on that cross, right, not only does Jesus take our sins, but it gives us his perfection. That God would see us not as like neutral, uh, sinless beings, but as perfectly obedient children because of what Jesus did. Hebrews 7.26, it was indeed fitting that we should have such a high priest, holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens, also known as God. So brothers and sisters, please don't ever think that the hypostatic union is not for you. Or that the hypostatic union isn't relevant for you. Or I don't need to care about things like the hypostatic union. 
No, the hypostatic union, however rudimentary or, or basic our understanding of it might be, right? it is a mystery of mysteries. But it is a most glorious doctrine that makes it possible for a holy God to save sinners like you and me. When we've been there 10,000 years, bright shining as the sun, we will continue to praise the infinite wisdom of God in the hypostatic union that allows sinners like us to spend an eternity with him. Point number three, the two natures of Jesus. Let me wrap up here by giving you two quick points of application One is for the unbelievers in the room, and one is for the believers. First, for the unbelievers, you came uh, here today, perhaps because it is the Sunday before Christmas, whatever the reason might be. Maybe your friend invited you. First of all, thank God that you are here. Praise God. Thank you for coming. I want you to know that you need to decide for yourself who Jesus is. Application point number one, you need to decide for yourself who Jesus is. Because consider our passage, and then consider just the rules of fundamental logic. One of two things must be true. Either Jesus is the Son of the Most High, or he is not. One of those two things must be true. Now, if he is not, if Jesus is not the Son of God then we really need to find something better to do on our Sunday mornings than to spend two hours here. Like, we must find a better hobby if Jesus is not the Son of God. And Paul says the resurrection, well, if the resurrection is not true, then we are, of all people, most to be pitied. I mean, how much more true is that if Jesus isn't even God to start with? But if he is the Son of the Most High, If he is the Son of God, well, that demands a response from each and every one of us. And that response is to bow the knee in worship and adoration. To acknowledge him, not only as the sovereign God of the universe who controls all things, but specifically the sovereign Lord of your life. The one who controls every single aspect of your life. The one who rules every single aspect of your life. To acknowledge him as the only savior, the only one who can save you from the eternity in hell that you deserve because of your sin. Friends, I tell you, Jesus is exactly who the Bible says he is. He is the son of the most high. He is the son of God. And yet the Bible also tells us that he is a gentle and lowly savior who loves sinners like you and like me. And so I beg you to cry out to him today. Look to him today. Call upon his name today. Run to him today that you might be saved. Application point number one, you need to decide for yourself who Jesus is. He either is or he is not the son of the most high. Consider that the truly logically absurd response is for you to continue to go through the motions of Christianity and pay him lip service without truly bowing the knee to him. Second application point, and this is for the believers in the room. This is an application point that comes from our consideration of the hypostatic union that Jesus is both fully God and fully man. Have you ever considered, dear Christian, that the hypostatic union is the basis that we have to pray. So application point number two is to pray because of the hypostatic union. As fully man, Jesus can relate to every single one of our struggles and weaknesses and temptations in a very real way. Hebrews 2, therefore he had to be made like his brothers in every respect, referring to his humanity. 
so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. And here it is, Hebrews 2.18, for because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. And so we can pray because of the humanity of Jesus. But he is also fully God. And so we can look to him for grace and mercy as only God is the source of those things. Hebrews 4, we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace, that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Friends, we have a great high priest who is like us in every way. Jesus the man. And yet, ever lives to intercede for us. Jesus the God. We have a mediator between God and men. The man, Christ Jesus. Right? That's why we can pray. That's why we should pray. And so praise God for the hypostatic union. Praise God for Jesus being fully God and fully man. And then, brothers and sisters, let's pray like we actually believe that. So even now, I'll invite you to go to the Lord with me through the God-man, through our intercessor, our great high priest, Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for Christmas that this season particularly draws our attention to the incarnation of your Son, that the second person of the Trinity, who has always existed as God, would take on human flesh, that he might die for our sins. Father, we pray for those in this room who do not know you. We pray that today would be the day of salvation. We pray that today would be the day in which they would truly consider the claims of Christ that you would change their hearts, that you would sovereignly work regeneration in them, that they might come to know Christ as Savior. And Father, we pray for those in this room who do know you. We pray that our appreciation for what you have done for us would deepen, Lord, as we consider these things from your word. We love you. We ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen.